Hey guys, just a heads up. This episode includes content that may not be suitable for young listeners. Also, the political views expressed by our valued guests are their own, and their appearance on the show does not necessarily imply any endorsement of theirs or any entity they represent. The Prime Minister was only a mile from a plane that went into the Pentagon. I was at home as acting Prime Minister, and we thought it might have also been the first of a series of rolling attacks. So it was a time when I had to face the reality that I didn't know what was coming, that I could make a terrible mistake and Australians might die as a result. That's a horrendous feeling. And I remember humbling myself before God and saying, well, Lord, um, I have to put any self-interest aside at this time. I can't jump over the bridge. I can't desert the ship. I'm it. The buck stops with me. So help me to do my job as best I can. From Lux Mundy, you're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Wong. On today's show, John Anderson, the former deputy prime minister in Australia, which is similar to the vice president's role and rank in America, was a farmer turned politician who played a critical role in a reformist government that boosted economic growth, restored Australia's triple credit rating, and saw average household incomes significantly increase during his term. Today, the economy is something understandably on our minds, as we seem to be facing an impending recession fueled by the coronavirus pandemic. As the world tries to navigate a global crisis, we may grow wary of government and politics as each country responds in its own way with different degrees of effectiveness. Now, today, whatever you might feel about governments or politics, I want to challenge you to put your thoughts aside for the moment to listen to this story. It's a story of how John Anderson got into politics, how he kept his faith through personal tragedy and allowed it to shape the way he led his country. For over five generations, John's family wasn't farming. They grazed sheep in Australia, where they made a good living selling fibers for wool used in premium apparel. But his family never felt complete. John's mom died from cancer when he was only three years old, leaving behind him and his younger sister, Jane. So they were taken care of by different people, one of them being governesses who are like nannies. Our governesses, the various ladies that looked after us as children at various times, there was a high turnover. Most of my, I, to be honest, remember with some horror, but one or two I remember with enormous affection. My dad at least kept us in the same home and kept us with him. And I'm very thankful he did. He didn't try and foster us out. I remember one of those governesses explaining to me on our afternoon walks as toddlers. So I looked at the moon I said, where did the moon come from? And she gave me quite a, a reasonable explanation of a creating God. I, I never doubted the existence of God from that point on. It crystallised it for me. So I grew up on a farm and it was quite isolated. I didn't go into a classroom until I was nine. I was taught around the kitchen table with my sister. I had an aunt who stepped in to play mum and she taught us. But if we finished early, we could go outside. And play. And do things. Well, sometimes we had to work on the farm. You were primed to be a farmer or you were just expected to help on the farm? 
No, it's an interesting story. I didn't know this until many years later. An author wrote a book about me, a biography. He got my school records. My parents were asked what I was to be prepared for. So it had a, the boy is to be prepared for dot, dot, dot. And my mother had written in the land, that means farming. My father had crossed it out and put university because my father wanted me to do other things. He had been in the army during the Second World War and he thought the land was unreliable and difficult and that I should be the first of my family to break away and do something else. So I did. I went to university. What were you thinking about what your major would be? I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, but I actually started studying law and, to be honest, found it very unappealing. I didn't enjoy it at all. Did you think a lot about politics? I certainly didn't have any involvement in student politics as a university student, none at all. Funnily enough, I enjoyed the conflict of ideas. I'd always been an interested observer, and I'm one of those people who believes that you learn all you need to know about statecraft by studying history. That's church. The further you can see into the past, the further you'll be able to see into the future. In common with Edmund Burke, I think I came to the view that the one certainty, the one thing you have to recognise never changes, is human nature. It gave me a sort of bird's eye view, if you like, and the great influence it was to have on my political views. John was quite fascinated in history, the conflict of political ideas and decisions political leaders had to make in the face of extraordinary circumstances. So after John got his master's in history, he went back home to be the first from his family to get any university degree, but says he didn't get quite the response he thought he would from his father. The irony of it was that when I came home then and I said, well, I've been offered a job now, I'm a graduate the look on his face, and my father was Edwardian in many ways, he didn't give his feelings away a lot, but the look of shatteredness on his face was extraordinary. And I realised that deep down, he didn't want me to go away, he wanted me to come and help him. So uh, I did at the age of 21 or 22, uh, with a degree under my belt, I sort of walked away from all of that and went back farming with my father. Spent 10 years or so actively farming, were you able to help grow his farm during that period? My mother left in her will. She'd actually left me some money. So I was able to expand the farm a bit as well. And so I was not so much working for my dad as in partnership. I enjoyed it. And in those days, we're talking the 1980s. If you worked hard and if you were smart, there was still a very good living to be had in it. But it was a bit lonely. There's the two of us out here a lot of the time. It wasn't just John and his dad out on the farm for too long. John eventually married Julia and got himself involved in helping a political organization. While John's dad wasn't into politics, John says pretty much everyone from his hometown belonged to the Nationals Party because the Nationals represented the rural minority who lived far away from the big cities, often feeling like second-class Australians. So John really wanted to work on this rural city divide and realized that because he had a university education and could write a bit, he quickly became qualified to run for Member of Parliament, which can be compared to a seat in the U.S. Congress. And what happened to get you into the political arena? This may sound strange and a little contradictory. I'd actually come to the conclusion once our daughter was born that I should drop the idea of running for public office and just help out on the organisation side. And then a retiring member, a retiring federal member of Parliament, rang me and said he was retiring and he wanted me to run in his place. And at that point, 
Julia, I think, started to grapple with what that might look like. And we were massively encouraged. And Julia's father was, was very, very strongly supportive and uh, was kind enough to say, look, you've got something to offer. You ought to be prepared to step up to run uh, as a very young person for a seat in the Federal Parliament of Australia. You are described to be as charming, as well-spoken. That's what people wrote about you. What were you thinking when you first got the opportunity to speak? So my old school headmaster wrote me this incredible letter after I'd made my first maiden speech. What's well, called a maiden speech. Um, uh, saying he had no doubt that one day I would lead my party and possibly even the nation. And I was a bit taken aback by that because he'd known me since I was 12. I would have thought his more likely uh, response would be, well, I'm absolutely stunned that you're there because I thought you'd be very lucky to make it. I kept mm-hmm. the letter. I think the honest answer is that I found it was a real emotional roller coaster. One minute you're being praised and the adrenaline pumps and you think, gee, this is good, and the next you're being criticised uphill and downhill for something you've said. It's an extraordinary thing to be in public life. But I don't think the reality, I don't think I could honestly say that I thought, no, I'm going to make it. After John gave his speech, he was elected in 1989 to fill a vacant seat. He was just 32 years old, one of the youngest members in the House of Representatives at that time. In a way, he was an underdog because not only was he from a junior party, but he also represented Gwider, one of the smallest districts in the country. In starting off his career in public service, John had to quickly learn how to speak in a way that would be politically sensitive. Well, a lot of people in public life, I think, want to be loved, but the experience is otherwise. It's very hard in a democracy to lead, particularly in this age when criticism is turbocharged by social media and by the unbelievable things people say when they think they're anonymous that they never say to your face. That's made it much harder now than when I was first involved in 1988-89. Do you remember an incident when you said something I remember once after the inner city riots in America, which were horrendous, and the research showed that something like 70% of the rioters had not had a relationship with their father. Staggering number didn't even know who their father was. I made a a carelessly constructed, though well-intended, and I think accurate observation about our civilization being doomed. Dads weren't going to be involved, you know, and I, I probably worded it in an insensitive and I felt really bad and humiliated, in particular in relation to people where there's just been no choice, dad can't be there, he's dead. That was a hard one. Yeah, you you can be seriously misunderstood. Sometimes you bring it on yourself. Other times, people in this terrible game of entrapment that's played all the time in public life in the West now, uh, others will trip you up. And you can have a dickens of the time getting people to listen to your version of the story. During this period, the Labour Party, which is like the U.S. Democratic Party, was in government. So in 1992, John moved to a role that allowed him to challenge the current government with alternative policies. It was difficult to be in opposition. But in 1996, a turn of events happened for the Nationals. It had formed a coalition with the Liberal Party, which is like the U.S. Republican Party, And the Liberal Party leader, John Howard, got elected as Prime Minister in a landslide victory. But the deepest emotion of all, I feel, is that of humility that the Australian people have given me the privilege of leading the government of this country. I will lead a coalition in government 
and I look forward to working very closely with Tim Fisher as the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. The Prime Minister then appointed John Anderson as a cabinet member, which meant John was now in a position to look at government spending and national debt. Describe to someone who's never been in the political environment, what was it like when you went in, reviewed reforms, and how to make those judgment calls? Well, it's unbelievably hard work, just like trying to balance a family household budget. Very tough choices have to be made. So in essence, the five of us, six when the Prime Minister joined us, when we had to make really tough decisions, you would go through uh, line by line everything that money was spent on. And it was very unpopular. Their aim was to reduce government debt, a challenging task given the complexity of budgets that could not be touched. He calls those entitlement-driven because people were entitled to their pension funds and health care. Australia has universal health care, so John and his team had to make cuts in other areas. Very hard with entitlements to then say, well, we can't touch those, they're written into law. How do we find other areas like roads and like transport and like research and like education where we can make cuts? So it was incredibly hard work. So the principles that were guiding you... We we said we were removing intergenerational theft because, you see, the problem is that if a society doesn't live within its means and pay its way as it goes, it loads debt against the next generation and the generation after that, which is what Western countries have done. Our guiding principles were that it wasn't our money, it was the people's money, and the debt wasn't our debt. The debt belonged to the taxpayer and in... Future generations. Future generations. We did a lot of very unpopular things at first. People would get very angry. Some program that had been cut, or, you know, we needed that new road. Why did you put it off for five years? So they were tough. You know, your own family members would almost spit at you for the things that you'd done. And you'd say, look, we just had to do this. It's like a rundown business or a rundown farm. We have to cut down on the holidays and put off the kitchen renovation and stop spending money on going out to dinner on Saturday nights and even give up the movies for a while just to get the fundamentals right. But the cuts seemed to pay off as they started to see growth in the Australian economy. We were almost voted out after one term, but after that, the rewards for all of that work started to flow and the Australian people decided, well, actually, we can see that this was worth doing. I think that was an enormously satisfying thing. Meanwhile, John's personal life took a turn. In 1997, John's wife, Julia, was pregnant with their fifth child. And when they found out that the baby would be born with a birth defect, John started to think about how this would impact his career. We were told that he would require 24-hour nursing. And my wife and I thought, well, we'll have to retreat to public life because I can't expect my wife to do it. You know, when you're a cabinet minister, your job is unbelievably demanding. I knew I couldn't do both. So I advised the PM that I would have to step down. And um, a couple of weeks later, he died. It was a very, very tough time for my wife and me, and not an easy time for all the children. While John had to grapple with the tragedy of losing his son, he was also growing weary of his work. As John mentioned earlier, public life isn't easy. From the day he got elected into office, he faced public scrutiny. And since John was part of a reformist government, which meant they changed the way things were done, they had to face a lot of resistance. So much that John often felt like he had enough. 
Let's take a break. And when we're back, we'll get into why John continued in politics and what happened when he was second in command. Hey guys, I wanted to take this break to share what we have in store for our next season. It's gonna get personal and possibly more raw and relevant to what you might be going through in your careers. The reality is the coronavirus crisis is going to hit millennials hard and it'll be our second economic crisis in about a decade. So we might need to brace ourselves for a lot more twists and turns at work than the previous generations. And with our faith, we might need to be ready to live it out in ways we never expected. So as we take a break from our monthly episode releases, be sure to look out for what's in store for our new season on the Millennial Career Path. And please get connected with us on social media if you haven't already. Welcome back. In 1998, John wanted to call it quits in public service, but he wasn't the only one from his party. There were two other leaders from the Nationals who are thinking the same thing. But with the possibility of all three key leaders stepping down at the same time, John had to really think through this decision. Uh, life um, can present you with some very challenging moments. And I felt under God that the right thing to do was to keep going in, in the parliament. And I did. I had a strong sense that you want to make yourself available for service. So John continued as the deputy party leader. And in 1999, Tim Fisher resigned as leader for the Nationals, which meant John at the age of 42 was presented with the opportunity to take over as leader of his party and become deputy prime minister of Australia, which again is similar to the U.S. vice president role. It was a very daunting position. I can say that now. Because at the time, you can't let that show. You have to carry the dignity of the office to the best of your ability. So that's what I sought to do. And interestingly enough, the initial media reaction was, uh, you know, he's so cold and aloof and all the rest of it, but um, uh, he'll never win through people won't hear him. And I was always surprised by that. So you had a tough start. You had a tough start in this. But that's Australian politics, the media and Australia's been, and Australian people too, frankly, are pretty tough judges on their political leaders. But on the other hand, once they get the, your measure, it changes. And so once I'd sort of tackled that and people started to relax and say, well, actually, he's quite approachable. I don't have many strengths, but I, I, I hope I'm approachable. That, that sort of eased fairly quickly, but that's the nature of politics. John continued to persevere as deputy prime minister and became someone the prime minister could rely on while traveling abroad, building international relations. And on September 10th, 2001, the prime minister was in the United States meeting President Bush. Prime Minister, welcome. Thank you. Uh, the United States has got a great friend. I want to put on record the admiration of the Australian people. While we were doing the news conference, the third plane, Flight 77, drove into the Pentagon and we pulled back the curtains and we saw the smoke rising and um, we knew then beyond any argument that this was a concerted terrorist attack on the United States. While it's easy to look back on a crisis after it's all over, to see how things played out, the Prime Minister barely escaped the September 11 attacks and no one knew who did it and what could happen next. So John Anderson was now in charge of Australia. 
And in those moments, he had a lot to think through. Very tough week. Australia had two airlines, which operated domestically and internationally. One of them failed that week, just a couple of days before 9-11. And I was acting prime minister because the prime minister actually in America. And then 9-11 happened. Uh, the prime minister was only a mile from a plane that went into the Pentagon. For a moment or two, we didn't even know whether the prime minister was safe. He was. They'd managed very quickly to get him to the basement of the Australian embassy in Washington. And we thought it might have also been the first of a series of rolling attacks. We know it was meant to be, but they ran out of time to train more pilots and plan other vicious activities. It was a very tough time because it was a time when I had to face the reality that I didn't know what was coming, that I could make a terrible mistake and Australians might die as a result. That's a horrendous feeling. And I remember humbling myself before God and saying, well, Lord, I have to put any self-interest aside at this time. I can't jump over the bridge. I can't desert the ship. I'm it. The buck stops with me. So help me to do my job as best I can. And feeling a great sense of calm as everything came at me. So what do you remember the overall sentiment to be the next day? People were very nervous. And people still come up to me in the streets sometimes and say that they so appreciated my appearance on television very early the next morning. I set out to seek to calm people. I remember saying, this is a powerful reminder that evil remains with us. We can't wish it away. We have to be prepared to remain vigilant in the face of the reality of people who want to do terrible things. Well, it was good to be able to reassure them the Prime Minister was all right, that we would be uh, making every effort to get him home as quickly as possible. It took several days, closed all airspace for three days. Uh, there was you know, an incredible amount to be done and we had to try and keep people informed. I think the management of a crisis, particularly in a media age, in our social media age, demands regular updates and great transparency from leaders. Amazingly to me, uh, I survived, the government survived, the country survived, but the world has certainly changed through it all. After 9-11, John focused his efforts on areas like introducing goods and services tax, tightening gun control, and creating reform in areas like immigration and industrial relations. One reform John was quite proud of, maybe because of his background in farming, was his contribution to how people use water. Australia's a very dry continent. I put a lot of work into trying to develop a, a better approach to handling water so that water resources were allocated on the basis of where they could make, firstly, look after the environment, secondly, meet people's basic human consumption needs, thirdly, for industry, they could be allocated according to sound market principles to create the greatest wealth for the largest number of jobs. And we got a very, what the OECD described, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development based in Paris, just described as the world's best water management plans. By 2005, John says he felt a sense of pride of where Australia was and where democracy had reached in the world. That year, Australia was out of debt and living standards were rising. But John started having health issues, a prostate condition that was stress-related. I was exhausted. I was just exhausted because I'd had 10 years in cabinet, by that time 17 years in the parliament, and I'd, I'd had enough. Uh, I'd had enough of living in light planes, away from home, etc. And I thought, I want to leave this while my family is still young enough for me to be able to play some role in their lives. 
So I did. So many times people, they love their work and they find so much meaning in what they're doing to make a difference. Then they realize, wait, uh, what about me and my, my life? It is true that particularly in public life, many people become hopelessly addicted and they start to confuse the broader good with their own interests. And I felt that I'd made as much of a contribution as I could and things looked reasonably sound and I wanted family time and um, I agonised over it all, you know, it's service. And I believe in service. I don't believe you find yourself in serving yourself. You find it in serving your loved ones and the people around you and community, even though often they, they seem less than appreciative, I suppose you can say. <laughs> uh, but I think more than that, I don't think our identity, our personal identity should be tied up with what we do. It should be tied up with who we are and how we relate, well, I would say as a Christian, to our creator and to our fellow human beings. John reached a political standing that very few will ever reach. He was second in command of a nation and was able to pivot and move up in the political ladder in less than 20 years. And to think that it wasn't even on his radar when he was in university. But like what John mentioned, he doesn't think our personal identity should be tied to what we do. Because if we love what we do, we're good at it, can even make a difference in it, what happens if or when it's taken away from you? John had a deep conviction of who he was, where he's been, and who his creator is because he was confronted with these tough questions at an early age when he least expected. He was 13 years old with his dad and 12-year-old sister Jane out on their massive front lawn one afternoon on his spring break. My father was a very keen sportsman, so we would be practicing some form of sport. Uh, now, he particularly loved cricket. And one afternoon we were playing cricket. I found the sweet spot and was belting him all over the place. He was bowling, I was batting. And in one of those inexplicable and extraordinarily, almost unbelievably freakish accidents, I drove a ball uh, through past him very hard. And my sister was playing with a just being with dad and her brother. She adored us both, I suppose, particularly with dad. As he was playing with a little kitten and she looked up, saw a ball coming for her and she, she instinctively turned away. The ball hit her in the back of the neck. And she staggered to her feet and made a few paces towards my father, calling out daddy, uh, and then died in his arms. And uh, that took me to a place of extraordinary loneliness. People were unbelievably good about it, school friends, teachers. But of course, I've gone to a place where nobody can really understand because almost no one goes there. I, in, a, in a long life, I've now met two or three other people who have been through such freakish experiences where they have been the innocent cause of somebody else's death. And I suppose I've been able to uh, at least understand and say to them, I have been to that place where you feel not only great loneliness and that your childhood is over, it's, it's gone, it's finished. You're no longer a child, you can't be after that. The things that amuse a child no longer amuse you, life is too serious. Um, uh, but at that point, it's probably true to say, uh, my father probably became angry with God. You've got to be frank about this. These events draw you to or repel you from the idea 
of a Christian God who is painted as a God of love. Uh, but I found that I needed to work through it and I was in a school where there were people who were able to help me work through it. And I don't pretend to fully understand it now uh, and I won't the side of the grave. How did you process it all and what part of the Christian faith drew you when it could have repelled you like it did with your father? Uh, well, I, I think I'd probably paint it as a three-sided triangle. There are three great dilemmas that open up as you try to muse it all. Well, the first and obvious one is suffering. Why is this evil allowed to descend on me, this terrible thing? And then even the subsets of that. Why me, not my sister? Why was it not the other way around? So in general, I think I drew the conclusion that, that we can understand in, in, in broad terms that this is a broken world and it will always be painful. And there will always be sweat, there will always be tears, which leads you to the second point. Does anyone understand or are you alone? And, of course, the story of, of Jesus dying after a completely evil trial in which every point of law, even Roman law, was turned on its head or ignored, innocent man's condemned to death and a gruesome and horrible death not only in the physical sense, as Mel Gibson shows us in The Passion, for those who have seen that movie, but also in the theological sense, a God who feels things much more deeply than we do. So, yes, there's somebody out there who does understand and who cares enough to do something about it because that's the point. He dies so that I can be forgiven for the things that I have done wrong because he has done nothing wrong. Then there's the third and really important side of the triangle that has been lost in our very, very comfortable societies. And as we speak, there are enormous challenges abroad. So I suspect there are all asking big questions uh, now about is there hope? Can we look forward to tomorrow? We actually can't operate without hope. We can't even operate economically without hope. It's a really important point. And the Christian message is that, yes, there is hope, the wounds will be bound up, the pain will end, uh, and we will live in unison and harmony. And I think that's incredibly important. Hope is something we can't really live without. As a teenager, John had a hope that got him through the darkest and loneliest days by trusting in what God had done for him. What hope are you clinging on today to get through what's happening in the world with COVID-19? What makes your hope strong enough to weather any tragedy, any type of business failure or economic storm? After his sister passed away, John didn't know where his life would take him. And he thinks that's a good place to be. Because in reality, you don't know what's going to come across your path. You don't know what opportunities will be there. You don't know what unexpected twists and turns will happen. Work out what you believe, what your values are how you're going to relate to others, what sort of person you're going to be. That's one way of putting it might be to say you should be comfortable in your own skin. Uh, life is tough. We're not who we should be. We know that deep down. The more you look at yourself, the more you realise you fall short of who you ought to be and want to be. And only when you've resolved those things, go back out and try and make a difference in the world. So when would you say that you were able to figure out your values? For me, it's been a long journey. I don't think it's easy. I had to accept very early on that my, my lot was different. 
uh, and I became a Christian believer. That's not a popular thing to do in Australian society. Maybe it had a bit to do with our convict upbringings. Men were meant to be self-reliant. They were meant to be tough. They are not meant to show their feelings. They were meant to lead, look like they were in control. You're not supposed to need a crutch like um, uh, religion uh, because you're meant to be able to do it without. While John had a deep conviction of his faith and values, he worked in an environment where politics was separate from religion. And that's pretty different to what we see in the U.S. So even his sister's tragic accident, John didn't openly speak about how defining her death was for him and his faith until after he retired from politics in 2005. So how can faith play into politics? From John's story, it's about serving the country to the best of his abilities, relying on God when it was out of his control, and doing what he believed was in the best interests of the entire nation and for future generations. John served in one of the longest serving governments in Australia, creating reforms that put it in a debt-free position before the global financial crisis. And while John has since retired from politics, he hasn't stopped caring about the people. I, I think probably in an ideal world, I would have been quite happy just to go farming again, but I did become very concerned after the great financial crisis about the state of the public debate and the polarization that's that, that has meant that governments have not been able to take their societies forward and get them in a good place for the next shock. The next shock's here, we're in a bad place to deal with it. Let's hope we learn the lesson out of this one and get real about making sure that we don't visit this sort of stuff our children and grandchildren, leaving them unable to cope with the setbacks and the shocks and the things that go wrong. I really admire that you are someone who cares about influencing the generation even after you're out of public life. I've, I've resolved to keep trying to put something back whilever I can. And I'm in a unique position I can be flexible with my time. I can't with COVID-19, but normally I can travel. And people are kindly willing to come on. Just recently, John started a show with prominent leaders who talk about faith and their political worldview. We try and model is a long form conversation where I say, I'm interested in getting your thoughts on the table. And we want to do it in a civil way where we invite people to stop and walk in our shoes for a while and think these issues through, try and understand our perspectives. So what has it been like for you to have this platform? I talked to a very fine young Australian not long ago who told me about the impact it's had in his life. And I thought that's one of tomorrow's leaders. And he's told me it's turned his life upside down for the better. And I thought, well, that one person makes the whole thing worthwhile. If you want to watch more of John in these conversations, visit his website, johnanderson.net.au, or you can find the link from our show notes. And beyond John just sharing his story to us on Faith Collides, we also captured some of his political views. What do you think politicians are thinking right now at this moment regarding COVID-19? I would imagine that they are extremely worried. No leader wants to be in command when everything goes to custom and one false move, or even if it's just perceived to be the wrong move that sort of brings the economy down or costs a whole section of the economy their jobs. It's a dreadful prospect. And I think they really are worthy of our respect and our prayers whenever you can sense that they're earnestly trying to do the right thing at the moment. At the end of it though, at the end of this, we are going to have the mother of all debates about how we move on. 
Now, if you liked what you heard about John, his insight on how the coronavirus might impact our future is one you won't want to miss. Make sure you watch out for the free bonus content. Just make sure to sign up for our newsletter on our website. This is Grace Wong, and thank you for listening. And I hope you and your family stay healthy in every way. Have a blessed week. Faith Collides is hosted and produced by me. This episode is edited by me and China Lee. Audio mixing by Joshua Huang.